Well, as you can see from our theme slide, we are still in this stewardship series that we're looking at. We're looking at the whole issue of financial giving. Uh, Actually, if you want to be straightforward about it, we're just talking about money, (laughs) and uh, that's what we're about. Uh, Tracy last week, Tracy Bianchi, uh, took us into that parable of Jesus about building bigger and bigger barns and uh, having ease for our soul and then potentially losing our soul if we misplace our, our direction. Uh, if you were here last week, Tracy did a great job, didn't she? Amen. And uh, in fact, somebody came up to me after worship and said, uh, you better watch out. She could take your job. And I said, I'm counting on it. <laughs> Our call for us is uh, often to give in the form of things that come in the mail to us. What are those things that come in the mail? These fundraising letters that we get. Get a few of those, do you? What, three to five a week? Uh, What do we tend to do with them? Well, if it's something we're engaged with already, we might take some time to look at it. But if otherwise, we probably give it a cursory glance and where do they end up? The recycling bin, right? Well, one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, uh, decided to do a little bit of an experiment. He said, he writes, for a period of a month, I tossed every fundraising appeal from the day's mail into a large box. Then I emptied it and read the contents of that box. 62 pieces of mail in a month. 3.5 pounds, he says. And then his response was this. After reading through all of those, it terrified me. And what was the summary message? Without my immediate help, the world may come crashing down sometime in the next week. (laughs) So what do these fundraising letters tend to have in common? Well, they portray some dire circumstance that demands my immediate response, don't they? If we don't give, something cataclysmic will happen, and we are the cause of that happening. Well, this morning, I want to take you into a, uh, the longest fundraising letter in the Bible. And that's uh, the two chapters out of Paul's letter to the Second Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. And the interesting thing is that Paul approaches fundraising in an entirely different way than the usual appeals uh, that we get. In fact, if you were to read through these two chapters and you ask yourself the question, what's the fundraising effort that Paul is doing here? What's the offering that he is collecting for? We might not even know exactly what it was, what was the focus of that collection. The reason for this is that Paul is far more concerned about our motivation for giving than he is the cause to which we are giving. And so if I were to summarize the theme of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, it would look like this. The clearest indication that we have been gripped by God's undeserved grace is the generosity of our financial giving motivated by gratitude. So see those letters. Undeserved grace, God, grace that comes searching us out. The response then is a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving that then yields a spirit of generosity in our life. So here Paul is contrasting the usual fundraising methods with his own approach. He's far more concerned about attitude of giving and what motivates our giving than the cause to which we are giving. Now, the purpose of 2 Corinthians Chapters 8 and 9 is really motivational. Paul is getting ready for his protege, Titus, to come along with another brother known to the Corinthian church to collect the offering that they have been setting aside uh, for the particular purpose that he has set up. Now, we know from 
other parts of Scripture what the offering was all about. We don't get a real clear understanding of that in chapters 8 and 9, but we do know from other places. And the offering was for the poor and the persecuted in the home church of Jerusalem. The time frame is about 52 to 55 AD. We know from other writings that under Emperor Claudius, there was a famine that took place in Jerusalem about in the mid-50s. And so the church in Jerusalem was really under the gun. In fact, they were probably a considered a renegade bunch, isolated financially. So it was very difficult to be a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem at this particular time. And what Paul is trying to do here is sort of set up a link between the believers, the Gentile believers, the non-Jewish believers, as he's going through modern-day Greece, kind of imagine where that is, two provinces of of Achaia and, and Macedonia. And he's creating this link that says, that church was faithful in Jerusalem. The source of the gospel came from there. You wouldn't even know the gospel if that church had not been uh, connected to you. And so because of your sense of indebtedness to what they have done, provide relief for them. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So as I said, the the purpose of this section of Scripture is to really fire up uh, the Corinthians to be ready to give their offering when Titus and his protege show up. But... uh, Paul is kind of a bit shameless in the way he goes about his motivational techniques. He does a little comparison. Uh, He says, uh, there is this church in Macedonia that is giving beyond their means. Corinthians, uh, don't let them outdo you in generosity. It would be kind of like me saying, you know, Oak Brook Community Church at 31st and Midwest Road, they raised $5 million last year for missions. Now, we can't let them outdo us, can we? I mean, certainly we can be as generous uh, as that church. And so Paul is holding up uh, the model of a church. But even as he holds up the model of the Macedonians to spur on the Corinthians, he does it still in the context of our theme, that the clearest indication that we have been gripped by God's undeserved grace is the generosity of our financial given, motivated by gratitude. He begins this section of Scripture by commending the Macedonian church. And in the message translation, it goes like this. Now, friends, I want to report on the surpassing, surprising, and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia province. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there. I saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping in the relief of poor Christians. This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. So here's the situation. Paul comes to this poor church in Macedonia. 
He decides not even to mention this offering to them because he didn't want to add to any burden that they already had. They were under, as it says here, fierce troubles. And wherever Paul went, persecution followed him, followed him right to the Macedonian churches. It says of them that they were desperately poor. The Greek word here really is down-to-depth poverty. They were just barely scratching out a life. And so this church probably could have come to Paul and said, uh, Paul, uh, yeah, take us off <laughs> the, the list of people who are, who are offering. Uh, and hey, Paul, can you add us to the recipients list? If you reach your goal, can we get a little spillover from this? Or you might have thought that they would have said something like this one that we hear people today say, uh, listen, Paul, uh, we'd like to help. But we believe charity begins at home. Why should we be helping those who don't even know, we don't even know in another part of the world, when we have such need here? So Paul had decided not even to mention this offering. Not to lay any further burden upon them, but somehow they got wind of the offering, and they came to Paul. And what does it say here in the Scripture? Pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians. Paul, don't leave us out. We want to be a part of this. We're so grateful for God's grace and the faithfulness of the Jerusalem church. We want to stay connected to them because we wouldn't even known the grace of God except for their faithfulness. And so we read in... 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 5. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to the Macedonian churches. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. My uh, first ministry position right out of seminary was uh, at a church located in the middle of the University of Pittsburgh. Literally, the campus surrounded the church. Thousands of students walking by us every day. And we had a fairly significant ministry to the university students there. And one of the projects we decided to do was a fundraiser for World Vision uh, based upon a 36-hour fast. And so we ended up with 306 students fasting for that 36-hour period. They raised money per hour of the fast. And as I recall, we collected about $8,000. Now, this was in the mid-'70s. And as I was thinking about this today, I realized $8,000, that was my salary back in the mid-70s. Well, uh, one of the students, Sue, who I will never forget, was a nursing student. And because she was on duty during the time of the fast, she had to eat to keep up her mental acuity as well as her physical strength and uh, could not participate with us in this event. And we had told them that if you did not participate in the fast, you could not give money uh, for the project. But that Sunday, after the whole project was over, she came up to me after worship, and she had uh, three $1 bills in her hand, and I remember them just kind of crumpled together like this, and she said essentially to me, please take my money. I want to participate, even though I couldn't. And it just reminded me of the Macedonians, that they could not step away. They had received such grace. The wonder of such grace was bestowed upon them. Grace welled up to generosity that was fueled by gratitude. They just wanted to be a part of it. And that's the theme that runs through this particular section of Scripture. Paul picks up this same thing again in the ninth chapter. 
verses 6 and 7. He says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Paul is saying, you want a full life? Do you? Do you, do you want a full life? Give it away. You get back only what you give out. You want grace to rebound back to you? Be generous. Give grace away. And he grounds this principle in the principle of of agriculture, uh, of farming. Got any uh, farmers in the room here? I was raised on asphalt and cement, uh, though I've done a little bit of vegetable garden. And it's a pretty simple truth that if you just throw down a few seeds... You're not going to get a whole lot back. But if you sow generously, if you give a lot of seed out, then there's a much better chance that you're going to have a great harvest. Paul's point, I think, is well summarized with this great truth. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And Paul goes on to say that there's, frankly, no absolute amount that all of us are required to give. He says each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give. The amount will vary depending upon our resources, frankly, how much we've been gripped by the grace of God. My guess is in absolute dollars, the Macedonian church was probably able to give far less than the Corinthian church, but in terms of percentage giving... My guess is that the Macedonian church far outgave the Corinthian church. By saying this, Paul is saying that each of us should decide what to give. In other words, we should plan our giving. Make careful and prayerful determination about what God would lead you to give. Paul has already written about this in his first letter in preparation for this offering. In the 16th chapter, the second verse of 1 Corinthians, we read, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. In other words, don't wait until the offering plate is passed. Yank out your checkbook, write a check real fast, and decide what you're going to give in the spur of the moment. (laughs) Plan this. Think about this. Uh, the Corinthians, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Their financial giving was an act of discipleship. They thought about, they prayed over, they decided what they were going to give. So what's your plan? What plan do you have to give? This plan from Bill Hybels, I think, is a very simple plan that we can remember He says that uh, we should pay God, pay ourselves, and then pay our bills in that order. That's the 10-10-80 plan. Give 10% to God, save 10%, live on the rest. And that's a good starting point. What kind of financial shape would our country be in if we actually followed this plan? (laughs) over the last period of time? What kind of shape would our own financial plans be in if we had followed this? Well, regardless of what we've decided to give, Paul continues to say it's really the motivation for giving that is important. So he goes on to say, each one of us should give as he's decided to give in his heart, not reluctantly. 
Again, he goes back to the motivation. Not reluctantly. And that phrase, not reluctantly, literally means without grief or regret. In other words, don't mourn the loss of money when you give it away. Why might we be reluctant to give? In order to give, we might have to cut back on the things that we want. Giving and greed cannot coexist with each other. Giving means that there are things that I might want, but I may have to do without because giving has reduced my resources. Whereas greed, certainly I think the American sin, is the insatiable desire for more. In a myriad of ways, every day, what's the message we hear? You are what you have. Now, there are certain things out there that uh, start to appeal to us, don't they? Maybe it's an electronic gadget that comes on the market. It's the latest thing, and we just have to have it. Apple Computers does just such an amazing job of enticing us to say, oh, if I don't have that, my life is going to be incomplete, or my life would be so much better if I had that. Did you notice this week the blowout blockbuster profits that Apple had? 20.5 million iPhones sold in this last quarter alone. 9.25 million iPads sold in this last quarter. And they entice us. They entice me <laughs> to say that I've got to have this latest tool because my life might not be as full. And so what is that it that I had to have? It's no wonder that the Apple symbol is an apple with a bite out of it, isn't it? <laughs> you take that bite of the apple you have to have. And so I bit the apple. <laughs> Could I live without it? I suppose. <laughs> Would my life be better with it? Gosh, yeah. And that's why Jesus calls money mammon or the money God. Because money isn't just a neutral means of exchange. It has the power to inspire devotion. Charlie Sheen, our latest role model, <laughs> not, I think has captured the modern definition of greed so well when he says, money is energy, man. That's sometimes what we feel. It is energy because it can draw us up into its devotion. But how do we lose the grip of greed? Only giving causes us to lose the grip of greed. Richard Foster in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, tells how to dethrone money. He says, the powers that energize money cannot abide the most unnatural of acts, giving. Money is made for taking, for bargaining, for manipulating but not forgiving. This is exactly why giving has such an ability to defeat the powers of money. So Paul says, when you give, don't give reluctantly. But then he goes on to talk about another thing that gets in the way of our financial freedom, another motivation. Each one should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, nor what? Under compulsion. That literally means to not give out of necessity, duty, or under pressure. And what form does that take? Oftentimes it takes the form of guilt. (laughs) 
I can get you to give on a short run by making you guilty about the lifestyle that you have. But it won't sustain a spirit of generosity. I I was at a meeting where the speaker asked us to stand up and and look at the made-in labels on each one of our shirts and blouses to see where it is that our clothes were made. I went to my closet, and I looked around, and I saw, well, my polo shirts, China, Malaysia, Indonesia, Lesotho. Anybody know where Lesotho is? It's, It's a South African tribal area. And the speaker said to us, essentially, See, you Western consumers are living off the sweat backs of people who are producing cheap clothing for you. So give because you're exploiting these people worldwide. I could probably make the case for you this morning that we in this sanctuary live in the 99th percentile in terms of income and lifestyle in the world today. That we rich Americans who are 5% of the world consume 25 to 30 percent of the world's resources. How can we continue to do that? And I can make you feel guilty about that. Guilt, guilt, guilt. And we could give on the short run because of our lavish lifestyles. But it won't be sustained as truthful as maybe those contents was. So Paul says it's neither reluctant giving that God wants they're giving under compulsion that honors God. What does he say? Each one should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful is a very interesting word in the Greek language. The literal Greek word here is hilaron, from which we get the word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. I did a little more research on this word. It's also the same word that's used to describe the mercy seat upon which the annual sacrifice was made when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people that foreshadowed the sacrifice that Jesus himself gave for us. This mercy, this grace... You know, the Lord loves a merciful, gracious, happy giver because we've understood uh, the grace of God. So this implies that we've already had the happiest moment in our worship service. When the plates were passed, I I heard the giggles. (laughs) I mean, I saw you nudging each other saying, put it in there, isn't this great? Did you see that? That's what took place because we've understood that we get the privilege of participating in the grace of God. Well, where does this cheerfulness come from? How does it get nurtured in our life? I think in one way, gratitude. Cheerfulness comes from gratitude. Here's your homework assignment. Read uh, the rest of 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 15, and you will see all these wonderful words that are circled here on the screen. Grace, gift, abound, generosity, thanksgiving. Go through that section of Scripture and just read those words and circle those words of abundance, of grace, of thanksgiving 
all peppered throughout that text. You can see a little bit of it there. And Paul concludes this section by saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And what's the indescribable gift? The gift certainly of Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us that produced that grace and that spirit of generosity within us. And it's gratitude that is probably the greatest feeling in the world. Dr. Lewis Meads, one of my professors, I think captured this feeling of gratitude better than anyone else I know. One day, Doris, Lewis's wife, found him lying flat on the floor at home, as she says, looking quite dead. They got him to the hospital, found out that he had blood clots like buckshot in his lungs. He hung between life and death for a number of days. And then his Norwegian doctor came in and announced to him that he had beaten the 20 to 1 medical odds and had survived. And Dr. Smead says at that moment, he said, matter of factly, oh, yeah, terrific, doc. (laughs) As he said, it never had occurred to him that uh, he was going to die until that moment (laughs) that the doctor had announced that truth to him. He closed his eyes and went back to sleep. And then this is what happened two nights later at 2 o'clock in the morning. In the moody hush that settles on a hospital room at 2 o'clock in the morning, alone, with no drugs inside of me to set me up for it, I was seized with a frenzy of gratitude, possessed. My arms rose straight up by themselves. A hundred-pound weight could not have held them at my side. My hands were open, my fingers spread, waving, twisting, while I blessed the Lord for the almost unbearable goodness of being alive on this good earth and this good body at the present time. I was flying outside of myself, high, held in weightless lightness, as if earthly existence need no ground to rest on, but was hung in space with only love to keep it aloft. It was then that I learned that gratitude is the best feeling I would ever have, the ultimate joy of living. It was better than sex, better than winning the lottery, better than watching your daughter graduate from college, better and deeper than any other feeling. And I am sure that nothing in life can ever match the feeling of being held in being by a gracious energy percolating from the abyss where beats the loving heart of God. You see, once God gets a hold of us, rooted in undeserved grace, generosity will never be an issue again. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, help us to see how much we have been loved by you, how much we have this undeserved gift of your grace that has embraced our lives. And day in and day out, we never outstrip the need for your grace. May it lead to spirit of generosity that will give us the freedom that is based upon gratitude, we pray, through Christ.
Amen.